your Bible up to the book of John. We're going to be in John chapter 17 this morning. We're going to read the whole of the chapter. So back in September, we started this series on the attributes of God, and we have been working our way through all of these different attributes, and this Sunday will be our last Sunday in this series, and John 17 will be our last text in this series. Between the services this morning, I was reflecting on John chapter 17, and it occurred to me this was the first text I ever preached uh, 11 years ago, um, about this time of the year. Um, and so this is a particularly sweet passage. So let's give ourselves to God's good word this morning. John chapter 17, we're going to start in verse 1, we're going to read the whole of the chapter. Hear the word of our God. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your words. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I have kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world." Do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. 
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that you, you pray. You prayed, and we have your prayer in front of us, and as we reflect upon it, we know that you continue to pray for us. For you ascended to the, to the heavenly places, and you are seated at the right hand of your Father, and there you intercede for us continually. Day by day, moment by moment, you are lifting up our needs to the Father, and the merits of your work are continually before the Father, and we rejoice in this. You make us glad, Lord Jesus, and we love you, Lord Jesus. And we pray, Lord Jesus, this morning that your prayer, these words recorded for us in the Gospel of John would help us. We pray that you would strengthen our faith. Pray that you would encourage us and move us forward. We pray that as you speak these words over us, that we would see glory, that we would taste glory, and that we would be satisfied with your glory, and that we would grow to love your glory. Lord Jesus, we need your work this morning, and so we pray, would you come among us, and would you preach your word into our hearts? We pray this. Amen. So in this series, we have covered a lot of ground as you think about it. Think of all the different doctrines we've thought about and studied. You think about all the different texts we've gone to and looked at and read and studied. And as we think about all of the ground that we have covered, this ground has been, been holy. It's been sacred ground. Just think about some of the places we've gone to. We, we spent time with, with Moses, and there we were with him at the burning bush, and the covenant name of the Lord was revealed for the, the first time. Moses heard the name Yahweh. I am who I am, or I will be who I, I will be. And we were also with Moses when the, when the Lord proclaimed his name. The Lord took Moses and hid him in the cleft of the rock, and the, the Lord passed by, and he proclaimed his name, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. We spent time with Abraham. We walked with Abraham. And as Abraham looked at at the frailty of human flesh and all the impossibilities of his life, we heard the good news with, with Abraham. You said to him, I am God Almighty. We went with Isaiah into the Holy of Holies. And Isaiah was overcome with the glory and the holiness of the Lord. And, and so were we as we heard the seraphim sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We spent some time with Nebuchadnezzar. There he was on his palace roof walking about and the word of the Lord came to him and humbled him and we were humbled along with him as we saw and beheld the sovereignty of the Lord as the Lord lifts up rulers and he sets them down. We've also spent time with the apostle Paul and we marveled with him as he described our great God. Do you remember what Paul said about our God? He said, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. We've covered a lot of ground in this series, good ground, holy and sacred ground. And as we think over all the ground that we have covered, all the places we have gone to, as we think about all the different voices we have listened to, we've listened to Moses and Abraham and David and other psalmists, even Nebuchadnezzar, all these different places, there is one voice that we have not yet listened to. Who might that be? Just 
think, who haven't we really heard from in this series? Well, it's our Lord, Jesus. And so as we wrap up this series, what I want to do is I want to take, take us and go and listen to Jesus. So the words that I've picked out for you this morning, John chapter 17, stand out as pivotal in John's gospel. In many ways, they, they function as a hinge upon which the whole gospel turns. So it's this crucial point in the story. And so before chapter 17, we have the mighty deeds of Jesus and the, the many lengthy sayings of Jesus. Before John chapter 17, we find all sorts of things like miracles and the raising of the dead and the, the feeding of vast crowds. John recounts them for us in these previous chapters. And we also find much teaching from Jesus. He's revealing himself to us with these many, many memorable sayings and they, they illuminate our minds. These words are familiar to us. Jesus comes to us and he says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. So that's before chapter 17. And then after chapter 17, we have this whirlwind of activity. Jesus' passion. We find his, his trial, his betrayal, his crucifixion, and then we find his resurrection from the dead. And, and John 17 stands in between all of this. And in fact, we could say John chapter 17 holds this whole narrative together. We've got all that comes before and all that, that comes after. And John chapter 17 holds it Together. And what John chapter 17 does, this high priestly prayer of Jesus, is it gives us a glimpse at this crucial point in John's story into the heart and mind of Jesus. And so I want to ask, with Jesus' public ministry complete, so his miracles are done, his teaching is done, his many mighty deeds are done, with all of that complete, what does Jesus now want? What does he want? We can ask another question as we look forward with his suffering in front of him, with his death in front of him. What is Jesus looking for? What is he aiming at? What does his heart desire? So as we take up this prayer, there are some evident burdens upon Jesus' heart. We see that Jesus has this profound concern for his disciples. He prays for their perseverance. He prays in verse 11, keep them in your name. He prays for their joy. He, he prays for their holiness. Verse 17, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. He prays for their unity and he prays for their faith. And then he does something, and this should just warm our hearts and immediately encourage us. He's been praying for the 11. And then he stops and he looks forward into the future and he prays for us. Think about this, brother, sister, and Jesus. Jesus has prayed for you. In the days of his flesh, he looked forward in the coming generations and he saw you and he prayed for you. Verse 20, here's the evidence. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's glorious. But as we sort through all of this and continue to dig into this prayer, there is yet a deeper desire to Jesus Jesus' public ministry is complete. He's, he's done his miracles. He's done his teaching. Before him is his suffering. And there's something deeper, something bigger. There's something burning upon his heart. Let me trace it out for you. Just listen to how Jesus prays. He begins his prayer by, by telling his father what he has done. So look at verse 4. Jesus says, 
I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And Jesus builds on this. He goes down to to verse 6, and he again tells the Father what he has done. He says, I have manifested your name to the people you gave me out of the world. And then he states the result of this work that he has accomplished for the Father. Verse 10, he says, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So Jesus is working through the work that he has done, bringing it to the Father. Then after he does this, in light of his work, he looks to the future and he begins to plead with the Father for the future. Verse 1, Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And then he pleads again, building on this petition. Verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So we can go back to those questions I asked you. What desire is burning upon the heart of Jesus? What is Jesus aiming at? What is he looking for? What does he want above everything else? And in John chapter 17, we get this very simple answer. It's a one-word answer. Glory. What does Jesus want? He wants to be glorified so that in his glorification, the Father himself would be glorified as well. And as we think about it and reason with this, all of this relates to Jesus' care for his people. He's been praying for protection and joy and faith and, and perseverance and unity and holiness, all of these things. And he's praying for all of these things for a specific reason, and it is a one word answer glory. Above all else, just think about it Jesus is praying for you, he wants you to feast upon his glory. We see this. Jesus pours out his heart. We see the the burden of his heart in verse 24. He prays, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Here in John chapter 17, everything comes into focus. Let me put it like this. Jesus lived, he breathed, he preached, he healed, he he traveled about, he bled, he sweat, he sighed, and he died for this one word, glory. And what Jesus does in this prayer is he, he wraps his great arms around the whole of our study, each and every single attribute we have looked at, and he summarizes our whole study with this one simple, single word, glory. So here's your last sentence in this series, the capstone sentence. God is glorious. God is glorious. The sentence that Jesus gives us brings us to the the center of Scripture. Really, it brings us to the nerve of Scripture. Uniting everything Bible. So you think Old Testament, New Testament. You think God's works in creation, God's works in redemption. Whatever God is doing, there is one word that unites everything about God. And that is the word glory. God is glorious. And what I want to do as we start our study of the glory of God is I want to just trace out the glory of God in Scripture in all things. And so we can start in the beginning. God created all things. Why? For the purpose of his glory. He made trees and birds and rocks and hills and mountains and oceans. He, he made ostriches and, and, and elephants and whatever else you can think of for his glory. Romans eleven thirty six puts it like this, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. God made everything for his glory and all creation dutifully does, fulfills this purpose. 
Psalm 19 verse 1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And this means something for us because we are a part of creation as well. God made man, forming man and fashioning man as a craftsman. Why? Well, Isaiah 43 verse 7 says, for his glory. And so glory is the great prize for which God strives. What is God doing in all of his works? He is striving for glory. The Lord lifted up Pharaoh and hardened his heart. Why? The Lord made that man's heart stiff as a board. Why? For glory. Exodus chapter 14, verse 4. The Lord says, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord's. And the Lord is thus jealous over the fame of his name always. He will brook no rival or competitor. He will get his glory. Isaiah 42, verse 8. The Lord says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My Lord, I give to no other. My glory, I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Because he strives for his glory, he is thus known for his glory. If we think of the Lord in human terms, if we think about his clothing or his garments, his attire is that of glory. Psalm 104, verse 1 says, You are clothed with splendor and majesty. Our God is known as the, the King of glory. Psalm 24, verse 7, and the Father of glory. Ephesians 1, 17, and the Lord of glory. 1 Corinthians 2, 8, he is so glorious that he is described as having riches of glory. Ephesians 4, 16. In this, our God displays his glory with particular delight and joy to the people of his own possession. We see this throughout scripture. Think of the tabernacle or the temple. What does God do? What is his delight? He fills those places with his glory. And so full are they of his glory that men cannot even enter into those places when he fills them. He, he led his people through the wilderness with glory. We were reminded of, of Moses who went up on the mountain and saw the glory of God. And he, he saw it so clearly that it shone from his, his face and God's people were, were scared to look upon him. He had to put a veil over his face. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us that we are all like Moses. In fact, we are in a better place than Moses because we now see the glory of God as it shines forth from the face of Jesus Christ. Paul details this for us in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Paul tells us in the, in the preaching and the teaching of the, the crucified Messiah, every time you believe and receive that message with faith, you are seeing the glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus and it transforms you from one degree of glory to another. And the future, too, is all about God's glory. As we look to the future, our God promises a glory saturation. The prophets spoke continually about the coming glory. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14 says this, looking to the future, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How saturated? Just how much water is in the sea? Or think about new creation. What will it be like? Isaiah tells us it's going to be lit with the glory of the Lord. Isaiah 60, verses 19 through 20. Isaiah says, The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light. And thus, glory will be the inheritance of all of God's people. What should you expect in the coming ages? 
in the age of the resurrection, you should expect glory after glory after glory. Paul writes, encouraging us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, he says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You can't imagine it, Paul says. The day of the resurrection is coming and it will be glorious. And so it is the joy and happiness of God's people to recognize and praise God for his glory. We gladly say with sanctified lips, Psalm 8 verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. We stand like God's people on the edge of the Red Sea and we, we lift up our voices in song to the Lord because of his glorious work. We say, Exodus 15, 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And as we think upon all that the Lord has done in creation and in redemption, we start to say things like David does in 1 Chronicles 29, 11. He lifts up his voice and he praises God, and so should we. He says, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. When you open up and when you read your Bible, whether in creation or in redemption, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, whether you're in the law or the prophets or the writings, whether you're in the gospels or in the epistles or in the book of Revelation, wherever you are, glory. You see it. The Bible is consumed by it. God is glorious. And no truth is plainer and no truth is more important than the glory of God. Now we've used this word about a million times so far in the sermon. God is glorious, glory, glory, glory. And we have to ask the question, well, what do we mean by this word glory? It's a word that we use as Christians all the time. We, we sing about it. We, we, we lift up the word glory and we ascribe it to God. We, we read it in our Bibles. And if you're reading Christian books, they talk about glory. But what is glory? What is glory? Well, we need to do some work here and get an answer. So I want to start with this. A man by the name of Jonathan Edwards devoted himself to the study of God's glory. He was so devoted to it, he wrote an entire book about God's glory. It's called The End for Which God Created the World. And in this book, he works through many of the texts that we just worked through. We just flew through them. But in about 120 pages of a very close analytical writing, he, he reasons through these texts, exegeting them, working them through, drawing out applications and after doing that for about 120 pages, Edwards stops and he, he tries to give a definition of the glory of God. He tries to, with precision, nail down the glory of God for us as readers that we might understand what is meant by this word glory. But after doing this and trying this work of definition, he, he stops and he says this, and this is so interesting. He writes, just listen to him. It is confessed that there is a degree of obscurity in these definitions, but perhaps an obscurity which is unavoidable through the imperfection of language to express things so sublime in nature. You have to love that. Edwards is this bright mind. He's got this massive brain, and he, he's working at defining the glory of God, and after he does it, he says, I have to admit, there is obscurity in everything I said. 
What is he saying? He's saying, this is so hard to define. I can't put it in words. There's, there's a slipperiness to all of this. This glory, it, deva- it evades my, uh, my definition. And here we have to be clear why this is so. There are some things in this world that are obscure. We can't define them, and we can't define them well. Why? Because there's so little evidence about them. So think of an ancient artifact. Perhaps think of something like Stonehenge. Researchers, archaeologists go to this place, and they have to guess and surmise what it might be, how it was made, what it was used for. And they have to do this guessing why. Because there's so little to go on. Because there's so little to go on, this thing is obscure to us. It doesn't make sense to us. But as we think about God's glory, God's glory is not like this. There is obscurity not because there's a lack of evidence or because there's nothing to go on or because it's just this great mystery. Rather, there is obscurity because there is so much to go on. Glory is so big, we cannot wrap our arms around it. It's what Psalm 139 verse 6 says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. I cannot get there. Petrus Van Maastricht compares the being of God, the essence of God, to an ocean of majesty and glory. Think about that. You're standing at the edge of the ocean, and all you can see is just water, this huge mass. And Maastricht says the being of God is like an ocean of majesty and glory. And so when we try to to define God's being and essence, our words falter and then they fail. And this hit home for me this last summer this matter of glory and its obscurity. We, my family and I, we made a road trip on our holidays out to Colorado and we spent a week in the the Rocky Mountains and our favorite spot was a spot off the beaten trail. There's so many tourists in Colorado. We went to this state park, Mueller State Park, and there, there was no crowds and we went on a hike and we didn't see anyone else And we hiked, and so we were about 10,000 feet elevation, and we went on a couple-mile hike, and we came to this outlook. It's a spot known for its lookout. And there we found ourselves perched on a ledge. And so this ledge is about 100 or 200, it's hard to tell, foot drops straight down. And so we, we take all of the kids, and we sit down on this ledge, and we're holding our kids tight so they don't fall off and die. And there we are, we're sitting on this ledge, and we can look out and we can see for miles. And I want to try to describe this for you. And so we're sitting there, and if you, if you look straight to your left, you look up, actually, and there's Pikes Peak, one of the, the tallest peaks in Colorado. So Pikes Peak is there, and as you scan from your left to your right, there's about eight different mountain ranges you can make out as you, as you move your eyes across the horizon. And as you keep moving your eyes, you can see peaks and valleys and ravines and jagged rock faces, and we can see all of these things. It seems there's an infinity to them all. It just doesn't end. And you see the closer mountain range, and beyond that mountain range, there's another mountain range, and beyond that one, there's yet another mountain range. All you can see is mountains. And so what did we see there on that lookout? The five of us are, are seated on the ledge. We're looking out. But what I think we saw was was glory. I think we saw glory. But here's the thing about glory. We didn't have the words to describe what we saw. We were sitting there, the five of us, and we were fumbling about for words because what we saw was too big. It was too grand. It was too wonderful. It was too tall for our words to sum up and capture. 
Not even a picture could do it. We, we pulled out our phones and we're taking pictures, but they couldn't capture the grandeur and the majesty of the mountains. You look at those pictures and, and, and they, they don't fit the memories that you have. In fact, I can remember sitting there on the ledge. I can remember feeling inadequate and it was a very sharp feeling. I can remember thinking to myself these sorts of thoughts. My eyes can't even see all the glory here. I can't even make it out. There's so much detail. There's so much here. Even if I sat here all day, I wouldn't see it all. And I thought about my brain and thought about my brain. My brain isn't sharp enough or acute enough or big enough to handle all that my eyes see. It can compute it all in my head. What happened for us there at Mueller State Park is we got a lesson in glory. That's what we were saying to our kids. This is glorious. And this is what glory is like. It is big, it is grand, it is wonderful, it is bigger than you. And we can do a bit of reasoning here. Just think. If a mountain range, something finite and created, can be too great for us to describe, too great for definition, how much more God himself who made these finite and created things, how much more God, the God who created all of these things, with just his simple word, he said, be, and it was. So there's obscurity in our words as we try to define glory. Edwards is right. There's no getting around it, but we still need something to hang our hat on. And though our words are inadequate, we still need to set something before ourselves so we can work with something. So I want to give you two definitions of God's glory, and they're going to build on each other, and they're from some theologians who thought long and hard about God's glory. And so the first quote comes from my favorite theologian, John Owen, and he gives us a start. This is a nuts and bolts definition of glory. He says this, all being, power, goodness, and wisdom were originally, essentially, infinitely in God, and in them, with the other perfections of his nature, consisted his essential glory. Now, some of these quotes aren't great for preaching, and so what is Owen saying? What is he talking about here? Well, he's saying glory, I think, is the sum of all of who God is. Glory is this word that, that wraps its arms around the fullness of all that God is. Its aim is to encompass all of the attributes of God that we have studied. That's glory. Owen says, and in them, with the other perfections of his nature, consisted his essential glory. So Owen's giving us a start. That's a nuts and bolts definition. We should be thinking some. I want to go to another theologian, Jonathan Edwards, and he moves us forward. And so he's building off of Owen, and he says this. The thing signified by that name, the glory of God, which is the supreme end of all God's works, is the emanation and the true external expression of God's internal glory and fullness. So what is Edwards saying? What is he talking about? Well, first of all, he agrees with Owen. God is glorious. That is who he is. It is the sum of all of his perfections. But Edwards does something really helpful. He takes us a step farther and he applies God's glory to us. So what is he saying? Well, he says, it is the emanation and true external expression of God's internal glory and fullness. I can translate that for you. He's saying God's glory is the going public with who he is. Glory is the exhibition of God's perfections, or, or to put it another way, it is the fame of the deity of God revealed. Or to say it like this, it is God showcasing 
before every watching eye the grandeur and majesty of his perfect deity. What is God doing? He is setting his fame before our eyes. He's going public. So think about it like this. In creation, God has gone public with his glory. He has like hung it like a banner in the sky so that we would see it with our ears. In creation, it's like he has taken a megaphone and he has proclaimed his glory that we might hear it with our ears. Or think about redemption. In Jesus' suffering and his death and his resurrection, what has God done? He has showcased his glory. It's like God has set it before us in this potent revelation. Even more, the light of his glory emanates forth from the works of Jesus and most purely and perfectly from his person. How does God showcase his glory? In the person of his son, the incarnate son, for he is the radiance of the glory of God. God goes public in the sending of his son, displaying his glory. So God is glorious. And that's our capstone sentence for this series. It's the final word for this series. You, you read your Bible and you will see that God is glorious. And as you read good books, you will hear that God is glorious. And it is the fame of his name revealed before us. His perfections magnified in front of us. And we can ask now, in light of this, the practical question, well, what does glory mean for me? God is glorious. We see it in Scripture. We have an understanding of it now with some definitions. What does God's glory mean for me? What does it mean for you? And for application, I want to go back to John chapter 17, and I want to just look at a single verse. I want to look at verse 24. For here Jesus teaches what God's glory means for us. So just hear what Jesus prays again. He prays, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. What does God's glory mean for you? I want to give you three, three exhortations in light of verse 24. And that'll be our application for this sermon and really the whole sermon series. So the first sentence of exhortation is this, you must embrace the burden. You must embrace the burden. You can't listen to Jesus in John chapter 17 in this prayer without getting a sense of the burden of his heart. Just think about it. Jesus has accomplished all the work that God has set before him. He has done these miracles. He has taught. He's completed it. And now before him is Jesus' suffering. The work of redemption is all in front of him. He's going to be sighing and moaning, weeping and bleeding. His life will be poured out. And what does Jesus want as he looks forward to all of this suffering? Did you hear it in verse 24? He wants you, dear believer, to see his glory. He prays, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, catch this, may be with me where I am. What does Jesus want ultimately? He wants you with him. And why? To see my glory. What is on Jesus' heart as he goes to the cross? He is thinking about this, you being with him, seeing him. And we can max this out and we should max this out. What does Jesus want as he goes to the cross? He wants you to cherish and love and so value his glory above everything else. He wants you to love him. He wants you to see his glory. And this is the burden of Jesus' entire ministry why did Jesus come to this world? Well, he came to reverse the terrible exchange that we have all have made in sin. 
What did we do when we sinned? We exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What did we do in our sin? We've said, as Paul says in Romans 1.23, we don't want your glory, O God. We want this stuff. Or to put it like Jeremiah does in Jeremiah 2.13, we forsook the fountain of living water and hewed for ourselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. And what Jesus has done and what he is telling us in verse 24 is he has come so that we might have and gain what we were made to have, the very glory of God. That's what Jesus is doing. Here I want to argue with you a bit. I want to argue with your heart. Just think like this. If our Lord and Savior was so burdened towards this end that you might see his glory, should not our hearts be burdened with this very end as well? If this is the burden of Jesus' heart as he goes to his passion, to his suffering and his death, should this not be the burden of our hearts as well, that we might be with Jesus to see his glory forever? Let me argue some more. Let me ask in light of verse 24, shouldn't the cry of our hearts be that of Moses's who said, do you remember it? We read this text, show me your glory. Shouldn't that be something we we say day by day in our prayers to the Lord? Show me your glory. Or to argue further, shouldn't we be eager to forsake lesser glories, lesser joys, and pursue the chief end above all? Shouldn't we be able to say with the Apostle Paul, shouldn't this be tattooed on our hearts? Philippians chapter 3 verse 8, indeed I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And shouldn't we be a people who pray that God would so burden our hearts for the glory of the Son of God? Do you see the burden of our Lord's heart? He is burdened for glory that we might see it and cherish it and love it. Shouldn't we be burdened towards the same end? Shouldn't we pray things like Psalm 4 verse 6, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord? I want to see the light of your glory. Lift up the countenance of your face upon me, for then I will live. And so here's your first sentence of exhortation. Embrace the burden. The burden of Jesus' heart is on display, and it is on display for this reason, that we might be burdened as well. That we might have this greater desire burning within our chest, and that would be the glory of the Son of God. And so embrace the burden. A second sense of exhortation. Receive the clarity that Jesus gives. Receive the clarity. If you're ever confused about the point of the Christian religion, or if you were ever in the dark about what God is up to in this world, what Jesus does in verse 24 is he removes all of the confusion and he comes to us bearing a gift and the gift is this clarity. He wants us to see that everything about, everything in this world is about his glory and that we might see it. Let me put it like this. That the goodness, that the beauty, the wonder of the Christian religion is not principally or centrally Christian marriage or Christian family or Christian work or Christian missions. These things are good things and they're worth pursuing and doing and we should love them. But we have to understand all of these things, whatever they are, they are subservient towards a, a greater end. And that end is the glory of God revealed in the person of the Son of God. That is the great end above all else. What Jesus does in verse 24 is he comes bearing this gift of clarity and we need it. 
We need it. Why? Because we lose sight of the end of all things so often. Just think about your life. Think about my own life. I just get caught up in my work. And I just think like I'm a hamster on this wheel and I'm spinning. I'm working away. And my head is down and I'm just working and working and working and I don't see what's ahead. I don't see what it's all about. And what Jesus comes in verse 24 is he comes and he, he lifts up our chins and he says, Look up, look out, look outside of yourself and see what everything is about. It's about my glory and that you might see it someday. What a precious gift that Jesus gives us. He is meeting us now, lifting up our heads. And so hear this. Receive the, the clarity that Jesus gives and calibrate accordingly. Think about it like this. Get married, have children, raise them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Go to church, read your Bible, pray, evangelize your friends and family members, serve in all sorts of ministries, work your job and do it well, but do it for this great end. Do it with your head lifted up, looking forward to what is coming, the glory of God revealed in the Son of God as your chief prize. Do all of those things, but with your eyes fixed on what ultimately comes. Receive the clarity that Jesus gives. And this is our last sentence. Our third sentence of exhortation. Grasp the hope. Grasp the hope. Think about Jesus' words in verse 24. Think about their character. What are they like? Are Jesus' words a wish? Is he just throwing up a Hail Mary? God, would you just please... Would you please, maybe this will happen. Maybe my people will be with me. Maybe they will see my glory. Maybe that would be a good thing. Well, no. Think about these words. Think about the character of these words. These are the holy words of the Son of God offered up to the Father. They are certain words, and therefore they are words set in immutable concrete. These words will not be moved. They will be accomplished because they are the words of the Son of God, and the Father hears what the Son of God does and will do, do all that the Son asks. And here is the truth. It is a glorious truth. Every man, every woman, every child who truly belongs to Jesus, hear this, will come, will see on a coming day the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Think about this. If you're in Jesus now, trusting in him, here is the truth. Someday, and it will come very soon, you will see Jesus face to face. It's true. There will be no veil there will be no haziness. You won't even have to use faith anymore for faith will be all done with for it will be sight to sight, vision to vision, face to face, eye to eye. And we will find in that vision as we behold Jesus face to face a weight of glory beyond all comparison. And hear this, Jesus' words in verse 24 guarantee you that. It's a guarantee. Jesus has prayed for it. It will happen if you are in Jesus. That's your future. And we have to grab hold of this hope. And we have to grab hold of this hope with both hands. Jesus is so kind to us. He's giving us this big promise. And what does he want us to do? Grab onto it and not let go of it. Just think about your life. What's going to carry you through all of the suffering of this present life? There is so much suffering in this life. It's like waves that come in, one wave after another, after another. What's going to carry you through all of the suffering, whether health or emotional or something else? Or let me ask, what's going to sustain you through all of the temptations you will meet in this life? 
And there are so many temptations we meet, one after another after another. Maybe you're even being plied with temptation this morning. What's going to encourage you and strengthen you when you're weak, weak in body and weak in mind, when you want to give up, when you're, when you're faltering and when you're failing? Or let me ask, what's going to pick you up and carry you forward when you are depressed and opposed and misunderstood and maligned and accused of all sorts of things? What's going to stay you then? Or let me ask, what's going to be your balm when you go to your deathbed? We will all go to our deathbed, some of us sooner, some of us later. What's going to be your balm when there is no other encouragement, earthly encouragement, Well, hear this. If you are in Jesus Christ, verse 24 will be your encouragement. It will be your balm. The form and sum and substance of the Christian hope is verse 24. We shall get Jesus and we shall get his divine glory forever and ever and we shall see it face to face in him. So hear these words. They're a promise from Jesus to you if you're in him. And what you must do is you must put all of your hope in them for they will be fulfilled. Just listen to what Jesus says again. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Grasp the hope with both hands and don't let go. So there is our series on the attributes of God. It comes to an end. And I think it comes to an end in the most fitting way possible. Jesus, in verse 24, comes to us and he takes his great arms and he wraps them around the whole of our study. All the attributes we have studied, aseity, omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, eternality, holiness, love, mercy, sovereignty, more. What does Jesus do? He wraps his arms around them and he prays, Father, I want my people to see all of these things in me forever. This is the heart of Jesus. This is why he came to the earth, suffered, bled, died, rose again, that we might get God and we might see his glory in him. And my prayer and my desire is that you've got to see bits and pieces of this glory as we have worked through the attributes of God. You've gotten to see bits and pieces of God's glory and you've, you've tasted it and it's stirred up a hunger in you for more and more of God. And be encouraged. If that's happening in your soul, that's what Jesus prayed for. And that's what Jesus wants for you. So let's pray towards that end that we would see and taste even now. Oh, Father, we are so thankful for the words of our Lord. They are precious words, good words. We're so thankful for the character and quality of Jesus' words. They will be done. And so, Father, we grab hold of them. We grasp them because they are our hope. Glory is coming. And Father, we thank you for the gift of clarity. We need clarity in our lives that we might look up and look out and see where everything is going. Oh, Father, would you grant us grace that we might live towards our proper ends, your glory revealed in the Son of God. And Father, even more we pray this morning, would you be pleased to burden our hearts with glory? you change the cares of our hearts? Would you change the the concerns of our hearts? And would we be concerned about the glory of the Son of God that we might see him? 
Oh, Father, would you grant these prayers and these petitions and do mighty things for us? We pray this in your son's name. Amen.